He has never failed us yet. What a great reminder of the faithfulness and the greatness of God. Well, I must say to you, if uh, email, response to uh, blogs, conversations coming from life group leaders is any, any indication, God is really using this sermon series to uh, deal deeply in our hearts with things that perhaps we thought we had dealt with, but we have not, uh, or things that uh, have just surfaced. They uh, are, are just current things uh, on the horizon. This morning, uh, the word is relentless. Uh, we are talking about relentless forgiveness. What does it look like to forgive relentlessly? Well, there is a, I, I like, uh, you guys know, I like all things Chick-fil-A, all right? So that goes without saying. But there's a new Chick-fil-A commercial that I love, and it shows this relentless attitude of one of their employees. So we'll watch it together. Check it out. Don't you love that? God carries around $3 in his back pocket for over a month waiting on this customer to come back so he can be honest. Uh, it's, it's marketing. It's brilliant, right? It says nothing about chicken uh, at all, nothing about come eat here, but it really makes you want to eat Chick-fil-A even more. And so the uh, relentless attitude of this guy is uh, really remarkable. If you look at Matthew 18, the whole passage, which is where we are this morning, uh, and, and it just dawned on me, I got up here before you read scripture, Bill. Uh, I just realized that just now, I was like, oh, this is where we are this morning. So, all right, we'll just go with it. So if you look at Matthew 18, all of Matthew 18 talks about several different things. And commentators wonder, is Matthew 18 just a collection of sayings that, uh, that uh, Matthew put together? Because many of them only he includes. So is it just a collection or is there rhyme or reason to all of it as it goes through? D.A. Carson says that he believes all of Matthew 18 uh, functions like a code for the messianic community, meaning uh, all of these people who are going to be like Christ, be Jesus people, then this is what it's going to look like to be a Jesus person. And so that Jesus' statements here are being put all together by Matthew 18, and they do have a common theme running through them. What are they, um, uh, the, the common things? Humble yourself like a child. That's the first of Jesus, the summary statement. Humble yourself like a child. The second one, get rid of temptation at all costs. Uh, we see that in the very next temptations to sin section. Uh, the third, leave the 99 and go after one. Leave the 99 and go after one. The third, pursue an errant sinner. Pursue an errant sinner, and that's where we'll land today. And finally, forgive. Forgive. So if you look at what it means to be Jesus' people, 
right? Which is if you are in the room today and you claim to be a follower of Christ, you belong to Christ, what it looks like to be us is we're humble like kids. We, we uh, get rid of temptation at any cost, at all costs. We pursue one Uh, Sometimes at the expense of the 99, we trust God with the 99 to go after one. We pursue an errant sinner, and we forgive. So life is supposed to be very, very different. So let me read our passage this morning. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him work for the IRS. Right there it is. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven again i say to you if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered in my name there am i among them all right so we have simple principles very very simple yet not so easy to do drawn from this passage the first one is just go Look at this. It says go. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Go and tell. These are the commands. Now, notice this is family business between a brother and a brother, a brother and a sister, a sister and a brother, a sister and a sister. If Your brother sins against you. Go and tell him his faults. Now, the key word here is sins. And this will take some discretion, right? To sin against someone is a serious thing. To hurt someone's feelings, maybe not so serious. All right, so you must be able to decipher and to sort right? Not everything will have to be settled out. Some things you can process alone without a conversation, and you might actually fare better. You might create more trouble by dealing with insignificant things. So the word sin is not a light word in Scripture ever at all. Sin is serious. Sin damages. Sin hurts. Sin devastates. So if there is a problem and someone sins against you, so keep it at that level, a high level. Perhaps they cheat you out of money they owe you. Perhaps they lie to you. Perhaps they slander you. Perhaps just look through the Ten Commandments. Think the law. Think the Old Testament. And then that gives you some parameters for going. Go to the brother who has sinned against you. And if you go and if he listens, you have gained your brother. Notice that's the goal. Uh, The goal of this, and people will ask, how do I know I'm ready to go when you're not ready to call him out? 
All right, so when you're not going to set him straight, if that's your mentality, hold up until that isn't your mentality anymore. All right, so if you're saying, I'm going to go over there, you know, and and all of a sudden you can't understand your words, uh, that's really a good sign that you should hold off. All right, so if your you know, pitch goes up and volume increase, those are all good signs that, yes, some hurt has happened, but you might need to wait. Uh, the goal is to gain your brother. Why? Distance between people gives the devil an opportunity to work. If there is distance between you and another brother or sister in Christ, Satan loves to step into that distance and create all kinds of scenarios that can play in your minds. And then let me speak to this on a very practical level. Because I think we look at this and we think brother and sister in the church as we should. But but let me just talk about brother and sister in your own house married to one another. This needs to be practiced. If there has been wrong, if there has been offense... Uh, Scripture is clear in Ephesians not to let the sun go down on your anger. Deal with that. Do not bury it. Do not set it aside. Do not say, I'm not going to deal with this. You need to, in that moment, deal with it. Go to your wife, who is also your sister in Christ. Go to your husband, who is also your brother in Christ, with the goal of gaining back the relationship as it ought to be. So, simple command number one, go. Command number two, go again. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, what does this mean? This is not a lynch mob, all right? So this is not, hey, let me get my boys, right? We live in Murrian, and so let me get my boys, and I'm going to get my boys, and we're going to come over, and you're going to recognize, all right? So that's not what we're going for, all right? This is not the goal. This is not the plan, right? That's not where, what, what this is about at all. It is, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Um, This gets at the heart of God himself. Uh, Why would would Jesus not say, well, you tried and it's over and be done with him? Right? Why? You've got to ask yourself that. Why is Jesus relentless? Why is he relentless? Here it is. Uh, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Uh, If we're going to be Jesus' people, then we are going to relentlessly pursue an erring brother or sister in Christ. It is easy to point out somebody else's sin. That's easy. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out when somebody is royally blowing it. Okay, we all can do that. It's one thing to point out a problem. It's another thing to hurt for, desire, seek after the reconciliation of a brother or a sister who is wandering from the Lord. All right, so... 
Uh, we see this in the heart of Jesus, Mark 2, 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What do we see in Jesus' heart? Jesus is a friend of who? Sinners. All right, let's do that one more time. Jesus is a friend of whom? Sinners. Jesus loves sinners. The church that loves sinners will be celebrated by Christ himself. All right, so when I uh, do counseling for couples who, we, uh, who are kind of in a difficult spot, uh, our first session has these three realities from Paul David Tripp's work. And those three realities, uh, the, the first is you're conducting your marriage in a fallen world, and the second one is you are a sinner married to a what? Sinner. Uh, we just, we sometimes get way too high expectations of one another, right? And I say to folks in counseling, if God remembers that you are dust, and that's what Psalm says, he remembers you are dust, it might be good for the two of you to remember you're just one dust ball married to another. Now, I know that's not good for self-esteem, but it's true. We are sinners married to sinners. We are sinners doing church together. I love what Tim Keller says. Tim Keller says in a church full of people who have recently come to Christ or come back to Christ, he said it's a wonder we can all get along. Why? We're just a, a mess. Are we not? We bring from our old way of life all of these trappings, all of this baggage, all of this sin, all of these habits, all of these things, and, and, and they just don't magically drop off when you come to Christ, do they? Oh, that they would. They don't. They just tag along. They drag along. We, we are a room full of sinners uh, doing church together, saved by the grace of God, sanctified, set apart for God. But we don't have to try hard to sin. Let's look then through 18 at this entire section. Matthew 18, 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Well, we... Uh, this is big. I walked through the nursery before uh, uh, church started this morning, just walking through, watching the uh, volunteers with the kids. And here at Grace, we value your kids. We love your kids. We, we give them top priority in, in programming and funding in so many different ways. But in Jesus' culture, kids were considered like dogs. <clears throat> and so when you see this, and uh, Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, this is a whole new way of thinking. Love the least of these, right? Love the rejected. This is Jesus' heart. Uh, 18.12, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? We're talking about going again. That's what we're talking about. Well, many of you know that uh, Wendy's grandmother lives with us. Wendy's grandmother lives with us. Uh, her, she's affectionately called Gogo. And Gogo is uh, 86, about to be 87. Well, Gogo has a hearing aid, and, and, and she needs it badly. All right, it took us years to convince her that she needed it, and then we finally convinced her that she needed it, and it was amazing all the things that, we can, that she can now hear. Uh, with her hearing aid. Well, uh, Wendy came home Thursday from work, sat down by Gogo, talking to her, and Gogo didn't answer. Well, that means what? The battery died. 
I mean, typically it's what it means, but Wendy looks over and guess what? No hearing aid. Where is hearing aid? If you've ever bought one of these, it costs more than my first car. So, so hearing aid is gone, and, and we are set up for a, just a typical Thursday evening until we discover that GoGo's hearing aid is missing. And when we discover GoGo's hearing aid is missing, all of a sudden, everybody in the house gets the best flashlight we have, and we start on an expedition. If people are driving down the road, no lie, because GoGo loves to sit on the front porch and eat candy. So... So that's what she does every day. And so I am outside in the dark combing through pine needles, right, finding candy wrappers but no hearing aid. <laughs> Loads of candy wrappers. She loves candy, all right? No hearing aid. We're looking everywhere. No hearing aid. Nowhere to be found. There's no hearing aid to be found. Why are we looking for a hearing aid? Because it's lost. That's why. Everything in our house changes. It's not, let's get dinner ready, let's do this, let's do that. No, we got to find a hearing aid. Everything. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's, that's the ethic. That's the philosophy. That's the ethos. We go after the lost. We go after the disenfranchised. We go after the erring brother. We go after the wandering sister. We do not kick people while they're down. We do not talk about them. We do not demean them. No, we pray, we seek, we, we go after, we love, we seek to bring the repentant home. Now, having said that, I've tried time and time again, and a repentant person, that, that word means to have a change of mind. I've never been able to create that for a single person. All right, so, so I've never been able to bring an unrepentant person home. Why? They don't want to come home. You can't bring somebody kicking and screaming home. Why? They're going to leave as soon as you get them there. They may be there in body, but they're not there in spirit. All right, so, so, so what, how do we apply this? Relentlessly pursue the person who has hurt you. Relentlessly pursue the person who has hurt you. Especially, and I would say specifically, a brother or a sister. So go, go again. Third, go one more time. It was like, well, Jerry, I, I was hoping you would give me some deep theological principle. Well, I'm sorry, but I can't improve on Jesus. All right, this is what he says. Go, go again. Go one more time. Look at this. If he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. What is the point of telling it to the church? So you can tattletale, right, embarrass, humiliate. No. No. None of it is for that reason. All of it is redemptive. All of it is redemptive. James 5, 19. <clears throat> My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, there's some terminology in there that's pretty powerful. My brother, if any of you wanders from the truth, what is the person called who is brought back? A sinner, right? You bring this person who's sinning. If you bring them back, what is the result? You will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, do you save him from going to hell? No, if he's a brother, he's going to heaven. So what do you save him from? Sin is a power. It is a power. 
I did a series a few years ago on sin. Sin is not an act. It is an act, but it's not only an act. Every time you sin, something in you dies. Your emotions die. Your will dies a little every single time you sin because sin is a power. And as a power, it destroys. And as it destroys every single time you sin, the emotions are dulled. The will is weakened every single time. The mind becomes fuzzy. You say, well, well, what does that look like? What do you, what do you mean, how, how does sin work? Well, you commit this sin once. Let's say it's cheating on a test. All right, so let's say that you cheat once on a test. When you do, when you cheat once, your conscience will hurt a bit and uh, you'll feel badly. But if the outcome is better, then somehow you'll justify that, right? You'll rationalize that. When you do, that dulls uh, your mind. It dulls your, your um, rational thinking capacity because you are lying to yourself. So you dull the mind, and then you must somehow squelch the guilt you feel over cheating, so that dulls the emotions. And then you do it again. Well, you have to do that again until the mind no longer processes as it needs to right? The mind just simply doesn't process as it needs to. It begins to rationalize sin. It begins to call uh, uh, things that are right wrong and things that are wrong right. And you will convince yourself over time that what you're doing is okay when it isn't. Uh, That's the nature of sin. So when when you sin, you die a little bit at a time. How do we see this in its most pronounced form? Addictions. Addictions show this in, in the most profound way or the most pronounced way, right? You take the person who is addicted to gambling, all right? The person is addicted to gambling uh, for some reason that crawls up in him and he loves to gamble. And so he'll go, and if there's a win, then that feels good, and it feeds something in him, and he's, he's gotten something for nothing, right? So there's a win, <clears throat> and then perhaps there's another, uh, but then there's a loss, and the loss turns out to be a net loss to where that what is lost is felt, right? It's, it's, in the, it's, it's below the line, so it's felt. And when that happens, the person realizes perhaps it's wrong. I, I should not have lost as I just lost. But there is this dulled thinking which says, oh, I'll go again and I'll make up what I lost, right? And so the dulled thinking, well, then the wife says, do you realize what you've done? He ignores her. That dulls the emotions. He ignores the wife. And then all of a sudden, uh, gambling is in full swing. And, And how do you know that it's completely run its course when the person uses gambling to take care of his problem of gambling? If I just gamble one more time, I won't feel so bad about gambling. If I just have one more drink, I won't feel so bad about drinking. 
And all of a sudden, this person in his thinking has gotten so out of whack, he has no idea until the loss is tremendous that perhaps will bring him to repentance. James says, in the context of a local church, a little bit of truth spoken in love can avert a whole lot of of loss. It, it It can take a train wreck and put it back on track. And so if you lead a life group, here's your task. If you've got a son or a daughter, don't be afraid to speak truth into your kids' worlds. That's what this is all about. So how does this practically work out? How do you bring a wondering believer back? Well, uh, every at least week, maybe other week, I guess, here, we hear reports of this happening in life groups, of people going to their group and sharing a, 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 a recent foray into sin and, and discovering that group come around them, pray for them, lift them up, and begin to hold them accountable. So certainly in that context, that group ought to be real enough that folks are able to share. We hear about this uh, as it happens in one-on-one interactions with people. And then in my office, every single week, I do this. I sit, I speak truth, I counsel. Third, here at Grace, we practice church discipline. You say, Jerry, what does that look like? If there's someone in our family of faith, they, they're, they're a covenant member here, and they insist on going on in their sin, they will not quit. They will not stop after repeated, repeated, repeated efforts to bring them out of that sin. We go to them again and again. Here, now at the elder, formerly at the deacon level, we handle this here. We meet with them, we talk with them, and if there's unrepentance, they're removed from membership here in this church. So the question would come, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the question would be, why don't you announce that to the whole church here, right? Because some do. Don't fault them at all. The reality is, in the context of our church here, there are a number of names I could announce, and you would have no clue who I'm talking about. None at all. To us, it doesn't make practical sense to bring a strange name in front of a whole congregation. It just doesn't make sense. So we keep it in two contexts, a life group and in the context of elders. Now, what's the result? Verse 18, truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Most scholars agree that, what, that this should read, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. It's a future perfect tense. I agree. If that's the case, what does it mean? Well, what is all of this about loosing and binding, right? Whatever you bind shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loosed. To bind is to prohibit, and to loose is allow. So what is Jesus saying? Whatever you bind on heaven shall have been uh, on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been lo- loosed in heaven. What does he mean? It means when a church goes and goes again and goes one more time, they are doing on earth 
what heaven is doing in heaven. That church is simply lining up with the heart of heaven. That church is simply lining up with the heart of heaven. And if it goes the distance to go again and go one more time, and the person says, no, I, I'm going to go on in my sin. I refuse to deal. I refuse to deal. I refuse. I have a message sitting right now on my phone from someone who has said that to me. Don't contact me anymore. Why? He refuses to repent, refuses to let go of his sinful lifestyle, refuses to follow God. Well, when we meet in a couple weeks with elders and we talk about this, all we're doing is what heaven has already done and says, okay, you'll go to the natural end of where your sin will lead you. You will follow your sin to its awful end. You will self-destruct. It's a serious matter, isn't it? Thankfully, this text doesn't end there. I would say as a caveat and as a warning, when will God cease to bless Grace Community Church? When Grace Community Church ceases to line up with heaven, we're done. And so it is with any church. What is the aim of a local church? To loose what heaven has already loosed and to bind what heaven has already bound. That's our goal. Our goal isn't to advance an agenda. Our goal isn't to have a cultural uh, uh, uh prerogative that we, no, no, it is to loose what heaven has already loosed and to bind what heaven has already bound. But look at verse 19 and 20. Thank you, Jesus, for ending like this. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. All right, so hope, where's hope? All right, come on up, Hope. Hope's going to help me out with something here. Now, how many of you have assumed, if you've heard these verses, well, two or three agree in my name, I'm there, whatever you bind on earth, or, or, or uh, let me, uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them, and uh, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by my Father who is in heaven. So how many of you have just assumed, just be honest here, right, we're just a bunch of people, uh, <clears throat> If you've gone to church for a long time, you've heard these verses. How many of you have assumed these verses have everything to do with prayer? Raise your hand. All right, most of us, well, you know, two or three to get together and I'm there, right? So I've heard that uh, have to do with prayer and really small attendance. All right, so, so, so that's, that's the two things. Well, there weren't many people there, but the Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there. And so we've taken that and gone, well, you know, we had two or three and God. So it all worked out. All right, but there's a, there's a rule. I remember my professor, I had the same professor for Greek and Hebrew in uh, the Old Testament, uh, uh, for Greek and Hebrew, rather, and uh, Tom Howe. And, and uh, Tom said, there are three rules of hermeneutics, of studying Scripture, context, context, and context. 
Well, this, these verses come at the end of what we've just talked about. So what do they mean? There is such joy by God when there are two or three people who've come together, one being an offended brother, another being an erring brother. God says, I'll come to that party. That's what this means. You want to thrill your dad, your heavenly dad? Quit fighting with your siblings. And all the parents in the room say, amen. Right? That's what this is about. And this word agree, this word agree is a really cool word. Um, And uh, let me see how the... Does this still have it? No, it's just piano. All right, so, so, so this word agree is where we get our word symphony. All right, so how many of you agree that she plays this thing really well? Yes. All right, so, so I, I called her this week and I said, hey, let's, let's do a song together. And what song are we doing? Just remind me. Yes, there is a fountain. All right, so there is a fountain. I'm old. All right, so there is a fountain. So let's start. You ready? Why don't you start and I'll join. Does that sound good? No. If you said yes, you, you should never like, play an instrument. That sounds horrible. Why does it sound bad? Because she's playing in G and I'm playing in F. That is not symphoneo, right? That's the word agree. Symphoneo, symphony, where two or three agree. But what if all of a sudden I get my act together? We're supposed to be playing in G. Start us out and let's see if you notice a difference. Go ahead. That's symphoneo, to agree. That old song was written by a man by the name of William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. He was a remarkable poet who came to faith in Christ and struggled significantly with depression. He was a contemporary of Whitfield and Spurgeon and John Newton. Cooper moved in England to Olney, O-L-N-E-Y, England, where Newton was a pastor. John Newton, you may recall, was that slave trader who came to faith in Christ and wrote, I guess, the most famous hymn 
of all amazing grace. Well, Cooper came to his church and Newton noticed that Cooper struggled, that he would withdraw into himself. He, he just, he struggled. And Newton decided that he would not give up on Cooper. And so he approached him one day, Newton, who wrote hymns, and said, why don't we do a hymnal together? You write, I'll write, we'll put it all in the hymnal. And, and Cooper said, yeah, I have this ability to write. And to, together they began to write what became more than 200 hymns that entered that old hymnal. And it was during a dark time that Cooper wrote this hymn. This hymn is all about a God who pursues the least of these. Cooper would uh, say about Newton, a sincere or more affectionate friend no man ever had. I would say to you, that that is Christ and that his heart of relentless pursuit of you must be our heart of relentless pursuit of others and that to be Jesus' people means that these words of this song there's a verse about a dying thief Talk about the heart of Jesus. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with this song. Sing out, sing loud. Let's worship together.